Welcome to the Impossible Healthcare Podcast, where we talk to the experts about pressing topics in healthcare. I'm Samir Berry. And I'm Mike Albert, and we are both doctors at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. Welcome back to another episode of Impossible Healthcare. I am Dr. Mike Albert, and I'm really excited to introduce the next guest to you. A lot of you guys may know him as sort of the VR doctor, but I know him as Dr. Brennan Spiegel. He's been a mentor to me during my time at Cedar sinai and beyond, but he's more than just a VR doctor. Uh, he's a gastroenterologist by training. He is the editor-in-chief for the American Journal of Gastroenterology. He's a well-published physician scientist. He also serves as the Health Services Research Director here at Cedars, as well as the Director for the Center of Outcomes Research and Education. He's led a multidisciplinary team looking at the integration of digital therapeutics. And recently, his team, and I was fortunate enough to be involved with it, published some clinical trial data on the implementation of VR as an adjunct for pain management in the hospital. Really excited to talk to him about what's happening around VR, the excitement around VR, and and how it's being integrated clinically. But he'll be the first one to tell you, as he says in the episode, that you know, he's the biggest skeptic, and, and that's really driven by the fact that the data needs to really prove itself. And we need to find out where VR can be valuable in terms of patient care. So I'm really excited about this episode. Let's just jump in. I think a lot of us, when we were first introduced to VR, um, back in the 90s, when it became more mainstream, was through as a new medium for video games. Uh, at least that was my first recollection. Um, fast forward now, the technology has changed dramatically. I think it's a lot more user-friendly, and uh, I've heard you speak a number of times about VR and, and its sort of promise and use uh, for the patient, and your first experience with VR is pretty amazing. It left an indelible mark, as you say, on you, and I was hoping you just kind of talk about what that experience like was like for you. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great that you guys are doing this, and I've enjoyed listening to some of the earlier episodes and happy to participate. Perfect. Yeah, so you know, you mentioned that VR has been around for a while. It's been around for decades, but it's sort of been relegated to university laboratories and psychology departments, and you know, uh, not something that's been public-facing for the most part, uh, or certainly not available to patients outside of you know labs. Um, so now that we have inexpensive, scalable and really um, very effective headsets. And in fact, just recently, the Oculus Quest came out. We might talk about that as a, the most amazing example so far. We can do a whole lot more with VR. So it's, um, you know, it's just a matter of creativity to figure out how to use these technologies. But you know, probably four years ago, I had barely even heard of VR. And uh, I was you know, contacted by uh, a company, Applied VR, uh, Matthew Stout and Josh, Josh Sackman, and they came to our lab here at Cedar sinai along with Walter Greenleaf, who's a professor up at Stanford. He's been doing VR research for decades now. And so they put me into a VR headset, and I open up my eyes, and I look around, and I'm standing on a window washer rig uh, going up the side of a 50-story building. And what was so amazing about that moment, which most people describe the first time they use VR, is how it just hijacks your brain. It kind of just takes over. And I could not, you know, disambiguate being 
um, in a real world and that virtual world at the same time. My brain had to pick a world. It's interesting because we never like evolutionarily had to live in two worlds at once. That's never been something we've been required to do as humans, but VR requires that of you. You have to suspend belief that you're living in the real world and the brain just accepts what it sees. And that's one of the, that's really what makes uh, a VR unlike any other audiovisual medium ever created. Is it is it the sense of presence draws you in and you feel like you're there. So I got to the top of this building and the window washer rig uh, had a rail that falls off and falls all the way down and strikes the ground. And I was hyperventilating. I can feel uh, my heart racing. I can feel this fear that was very real fear, but it was a digital sleight of hand as I'm standing in you know, an office. And they said, jump off the window washer rig. And I said, no, there's no chance I'm going to do that, right? And they said, no, come on. You know that your feet are standing on carpet. And I always say, like, well, my feet knew that, but my brain didn't know that. My brain was unwilling to accept um, that I was standing in, in an office. So it took all of me, and I had to cheat in order to jump off this building. I, I saw a little slice, a sliver of light coming through the head-mounted display. And when I looked through it, I noticed the carpet and I could see the carpet and it was this stable point um, in this otherwise dynamic environment that was enough to break the illusion and allow me to jump off this building. So that's when I discovered VR and I always say, well, geez, if it can be used for evil, then we must find a way to use it for good. And now four, four years later, here we are talking about that. You know, to, to get everybody on the same page, is there a standardized definition of what VR is in terms of whether it's 3D or 2D, uh, how, how high quality the sound fidelity is, or you know whether there's a bodysuit? There's so many different, I would right. say maybe like a spectrum of what reality is all the way to virtual reality, like a Ready Player One type of scenario. For clinical use, or at least in your opinion, is there a standard definition of saying this is VR, this is not VR? Yeah, it is a little bit fluid and there are kind of textbook definitions, but even the experts uh, I find tend to disagree a little bit about what makes for VR. You know, traditionally VR is a computer generated three-dimensional environment um, in which a user um, can explore in all, in all dimensions uh, and can interact. So the idea of interacting with the environment is a very important part of virtual reality that distinguishes it from something like a 360 degree video uh, where you know you are inside a scene and can look all around that scene, uh, but don't interact with the objects within that scene. So that's not technically VR, though I tend to call that VR. Uh, I'm not you know as I'm not as hung up about the definitions, um, but generally we're talking about about those components. So what about um, augmented reality or mixed reality? Mm -hmm. um, wh what, are, what, what does that add? What layer does that add, would you say, to VR, um, aside from the ability where you're looking and maybe interacting with the environment around you? Yeah, in a way it adds, but it also subtracts. It's just different AR, because with AR, you know, you think about the Microsoft HoloLens, for example, where you're looking through a clear visor and can see the real world, but then there are overlaid elements that augment that real world. So in medicine, a good use case is, for example, uh, in surgery, 
where some surgeons are looking at a surgical field, um, but then certain aspects of that field might be highlighted. Or you think about, you know, F-16 pilots that are looking out the front visor and then they're overlaid objects that are helping them understand the real environment more quickly or efficiently. So that's what AR is, but AR doesn't have the sense of presence that VR provides. So in a way, with VR blindfolding you, you're able to see more than you ever could see in the real world because you're blindfolded, but your eyes are open to an, a completely new environment and you're not burdened by the real world. So the blindfold of the VR is really what allows you to move into a completely new world. And that's why it's quite different from AR. And the use cases in healthcare are also quite different. So <clears throat> jumping into uh, why we're seeing more and more mainstream adoption of VR, I think one of the real rate limiting factors back in the early 90s when we saw sort of, sort of these early video game adaptations was the fact that the resolution wasn't lifelike. Um, the lag time in terms of the refresh rate was you know, nauseating. Um, but the technology's really caught up like it does in most other industries. And you had used the Oculus Quest as an example of that. I'm just curious, have you had a chance to use it yourself? And what is that your experience like with Yes, uh, really amazing. So I have used the Oculus Quest. It just came out. Just We literally just this week or last week got our, our, um, our lab got a couple of these. And um, it's actually been kind of a mixed experience. I'll explain. So what the idea of, uh, just to take a step back, is we, we talk about something called degrees of freedom or DOF or DOF is the term, the technical term. So most traditional uh, VR headsets are three DOF or three degrees of freedom. So what that means is um, you can move you can move your head in three planes, X, Y, and Z. Um, so you know left and right, up and down, and roll. So pitch, yaw, and roll. Uh, but you're stationary. So the Oculus Go is an example of a headset that we use quite frequently here at Cedar Sinai. It's an all-in-one three DOF device. And it's a very good device, um, but it doesn't have six degrees of freedom. So the next three are literally moving. It's also called vection. So you're moving forward, you're moving back, left, right, up, down. So now we can start to, for example, do squats. You can think about what you can do physically. You can squat down, you can stand up, you can walk around in space. And so the Oculus Quest is the first all-in-one device that is untethered which means it's not connected to a computer with a wire, uh, nor does it require what are called towers, where in the past you'd have to set up a, a special setup where there are towers with sensors that are tracking your position in space. Um, now all of that is being done on the headset itself, which has these cameras situated on the outside perimeter of the head uh, mounted display, and it maps the room around you. And when you first get into the Oculus Quest, you uh, literally see the world around you, even though you've got the headset on. And that's really strange just to start with. And what you do is you, oh, you paint a border around you uh, that is a safe space. So you, you paint that border around chairs and objects that could potentially injure you. And then it uh, puts up what's called the guardian. So you're surrounded by a wall uh, if you breach the wall, it warns you not to go any further or else you're going to injure yourself. So that's how it works. And it's really quite amazing. And it allows you now to walk around in space uh, and play games. So you can think about for rehabilitation and healthcare, I can now really do full range of motion, that sort of thing. Although I have to say, 
that I was in the middle of a very intense boxing match uh, just the other day, and uh, I happened to box as an aside, and I'm, I was tr trying to pound this guy, and next thing I know, I pound my face into the wall, smashed my head into the wall, and actually uh, damaged the headset. And I thought, what happened to the Guardian? The Guardian was gone. So the Guardian had completely shifted so that it was redrawing itself through the physical wall. Um, so I was on the phone with Oculus today, and um, others are experiencing this too. So first user bumps. <laughs> Uh, we need to work on this a little bit. Uh, so that's just an interesting aside, and it points out that the uh, technology is always being developed. So we still have a little bit of work to do on this, but amazing device nonetheless. Uh, I think you know there's always hiccups with the first with the first version of anything, but that goes into another kind of I think hurdle or challenge in in VR which is the computing power, the processing power, the GPU, the graphics. Do you see that as a hurdle for its use in healthcare in the next months or years? Or do you think that, you know, with Moore's law and things changing so quickly, we'll get to a point in the near future where, you know, the graphics are actually pretty high resolution, um, not kind of, uh, I don't want to say cartoony, but they're more realistic than the graphics we see with VR right now. The graphics have gotten amazing now, um, and I don't think need to get that much more amazing for them to have a therapeutic benefit. In fact, there's some older data that the graphics don't really even need to be that great for the brain to accept the world that it's in, as long as they're good enough. There's this whole idea of the uncanny valley, it's called, which is if the graphics get um, even better, but not quite good enough, then believability starts to drop until they get so good that you really feel like you're looking at an avatar. Usually this applies to human faces. So, you know, the, you realize it's sort of cartoonish, but then it gets kind of realistic. You're like, oh, I don't think that's realistic anymore. Uh, and then it has to get so good before you realize, oh yeah, that's a real human, sure. So there's a whole bunch of uh, UI UX stuff around that. But for healthcare, I mean, I'm seeing great graphics right now. We could talk about some examples. Um, uh, I don't think it needs to get a lot better, but you know the issue is people might get bored or you know get used to a certain level. Um, the other thing that's interesting is the live stream social VR, where you can engage, like for example, with a therapist uh, in a room in real time. And I actually just this morning worked on a, se uh, a session uh, real time with a, a mock therapist. But for that type of live stream, the um, um, the uh, resolution actually is pretty low. Uh, it cannot support really high resolution and have live stream at the same time yet. So there's all sorts of interesting limitations um, on frame rate and, and uh, graphics. Yeah, we were talking to uh, Dr. Saxon at USC earlier for another episode of the podcast, and she actually mentioned there's studies showing that patients are more likely to be more forthcoming with a bot therapist um, or a virtual therapist than they are sometimes with even a real human therapist. So that's, that's a really interesting application, I think, from the mental health space. Yeah, a lot of that comes out of Skip Rizzo's work, also at USC, uh, where Leslie is. Uh, he, he's done a lot of work with these virtual humans. And the whole idea is that, just like you said, um, people are willing to engage with the sort of robotic you know, avatar as long as it looks and feels um, genuine enough. Uh, and responds in a human enough manner. Uh, and there's some terrific research coming out of USC demonstrating that, you know, for example, uh, um, uh, soldiers suffering from PTSD, uh, there's a lot of research where they will sit in a room uh, with a virtual avatar and, and do feedback, you know, bio, uh, do you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. So we're <clears throat> getting into some of the clinical uses of virtual reality, and we've briefly touched on some of the consumer uses. 
Um, one of the real promises of VR in, in uh, my estimation is meeting sort of these unmet needs within healthcare. And I know we've been involved here at Cedars in looking at some of the clinical uses of it, doing clinical trials, particularly as, it, as an adjunct to pain management. Um, but one of the other uses Dr. Danovich here at Cedars at a psychiatry talks about is meeting this unmet need in mental health, um, where 70% of persons who need mental health services don't have accesses at, access at this time. And 45% of the world lives in an area where um, there's only one psychiatrist for 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a clear need. And, and if VR can help at least bridge some of that gap, I mean, that's, that's a huge boon for mental health. Yeah, this is a terrifically important area uh, and really one of, one of the most important use cases for VR for all the reasons you outlined. I mean, listen, mental health, uh, you know, affects every aspect of healthcare. I, mean, I happen to be a gastroenterologist. We talk about the brain gut axis, you know, and cardiologists, they talk about, you know, maybe psychogenic uh, chest pain. I mean, you know, neurologists talk about psychogenic, you know, um, uh, you know, neurological symptoms um, and, you know, paresthesias or whatever. So everyone knows that the mind and the body are connected. There's no mystery there. Uh, what we've learned a lot about in the last decade or more from neuroscientists is exactly how the mind can affect the physical body and how the physical body affects the mind. And this whole notion of dualism that goes all the way back to the mid 1600s from Descartes, that the mind and the body are separate and material, one's material, one's immaterial. That's just, you know, it turns out that's wrong. Uh, and they're connected. They're both physical structures that communicate all the time. So what I'm getting at is it's no wonder that mental health is so important epidemiologically, clinically, and, and we are way short in meeting the mental health needs of our patients for all the reasons you've laid out. So what VR can potentially help with is extend the four walls of the office um, to become virtual walls anywhere in the world. So, uh, you know, there are companies right now, Thera is one that we're working with right now, just testing out their, their app, where, you know, you can sit in an environment and take on any um, role you want. You can, you know, assume in any avatar you want. You want to feel strong and powerful, you, know, you can be a wizard. I mean, whatever you want to be, and your, your therapist is sitting there with you, and you want to do this uh, by a lake, or you want to do it uh, floating out in outer space, wherever you want to go, there you are. Maybe you need to do this in a bar because uh, you're working on sobriety and need to actually feel that uh, drive um, to imbibe, which being in a bar triggers. So VR can do these sorts of things. It's that's what makes it so powerful. You know, um, a lot of the studies that I was reading about VR, um, they mentioned, you know, words that you've talked a lot about, uh, the theories of distraction, extinction, gate control, spotlight theories. Um, can you explain some of the main points of the things you think are most important, you know, without a slide deck, I know it's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've seen some of your lectures about it, but just for the listeners, some of the main salient points that you think are really important to hit home for how this is actually working, um, almost at a physiologic level. Yeah, it is, it is, um, uh, a, a long discussion, but you know, the bottom line, it comes back to what I said before, that the, the mind and the body are, are connected. So, you know, we have senses on the surface of our body. We see things, we hear things, we smell things. Now, the visual cortex makes up most of the sensory cortex is visual. And that makes sense evolutionarily. If you see a lion coming at you, uh, you run. You don't wait to smell the lion or else it's, it's too late. We wouldn't be here talking if that was the only sense that we had. So the eyes are really important. Um, you want to get somebody's attention, you do it visually first. Uh, so 
so VR is a visual medium first and foremost, but it also triggers uh, other senses, uh, increasingly touch with haptics and, and sound, of course. But the point is we have these, it's called extraception, which is the surface of our body. And that's how we collect information about the world. That information goes into our brain and gets transmitted into our body. And it turns out, this is really interesting, um, the emotions that we feel occur in our body. Often we think of emotions as a mental event, but, but emotions are actually a physical event. So when I described standing on that window washer rig, I was scared. What did that mean? It meant my heart was beating fast. It meant there were beads of sweat accumulating in my skin. Uh, it meant that my, my pupils were dilating. My gut probably stopped moving. That literally is fear and it occurs in the body. But what happens next is those signals go from the body up back into the brain through, it's called interoception. This is, you know, for every one sensor we have on the surface of our body, there's 100,000 sensors inside our body that are constantly monitoring our wet inner world and looking for perturbations. And when the body gets thrown off a little bit, the brain then figures this out, and that's when we have what we call feelings. And that's the actual first mental experience of the emotion. So again, we can go on and on about this, but if, as it goes back and forth and bounces between extraception, interception, back up into the brain, it's a circuit that goes back and forth. And eventually that circuit will create cognitions. These are beliefs that we hold about the world. Like, oh, I believe that I shouldn't stand on a window washer rig because I could die. And that could turn into a phobia, by the way. So what VR does is it can be inserted right into that circuit. We can manipulate the experience of the world uh, reproducibly, reliably, and in a way that is hopefully therapeutic. And by doing it over and over again, we can condition the body to respond differently uh, physically. And ultimately we can potentially create new cognitions about the world. We can think differently about the world. I can think differently about the pain I'm experiencing, for example, or think differently about my fear of spiders. We don't want people to live in VR forever. We want them to learn something about their body, to be able to control their body in a different way and then go back out into the real world. So that's a little longer explanation than I'd like, but, that, but it requires about that much to kind of get at it. So <clears throat> talking about controlling cognitions, um, one of the really interesting examples of this is from work that Dr. Mel Slater has done. Yes. and he describes this experience of the VR body illusion, mm -hmm. where you can um, literally put any individual in any type of body form, whether it's someone of another race, someone of another body size and shape, or even just put yourself um, in a situation where you are talking to yourself, you're visualizing your own VR avatar. And through this process um, of creating these alternate, alternate sort of avatars in this virtual world, people have developed compassion, mm -hmm. compassion for other races, compassion mm -hmm. for themselves and what they're going through. And I think that's incredibly powerful because you talk about being able to work with yourself in this virtual world to develop new cognitions. I mean, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Amazing example of this. Cause I visited Mel Slater in his lab in university of Barcelona. And, uh, at one point he put me in an avatar and I looked in a mirror and I was standing in, in a, like an apartment and I had become a woman. And I looked in the mirror and I saw myself and it was very realistic. I, I saw a reflection of my, my reflection as a woman. I looked down at my body and it was a female body. And now all of a sudden this man opens up the door and he's drunk and pissed off. And he comes into this apartment and he stares at me and he starts yelling at me. 
and he's calling me names and he's cursing at me and he's calling me ugly and I'm ugly cow and ugly pig. And he gets closer and closer and he gets right up in front of my face. And as tall as I am, he was taller. And who, he's always taller than whoever is in the headset. That's the point. And he looked down on me and he's staring at me. He didn't strike me, but I felt this like, oh my God, this must be what it's like uh, to be the vic- a victim of domestic violence and the verbal abuse that he was throwing at me. And I completely forgot that I was a man standing in a laboratory. I was that woman uh, and I was the, receiving this, this, this uh, abuse. And it turns out in, a, in a, an almost clockwork orange kind of way, um, uh, Mel Slater is using this um, in Spain for people who've been convicted of domestic violence. And these parolees actually have to go through his program now. And there's evidence that it can change their cognitions about what it feels like to be the victim of domestic violence. And hopefully it changes their, uh, their behaviors in the future. So that's one really powerful example. Are there other exciting um, applications for VR that perhaps people aren't thinking about? I know there's a lot of talk about, of course, it's clinical utility, and I've seen a lot of um, mentions of its utility in medical education and helping, mm-hmm. you know, medical students and other uh, healthcare students understand parts of the body that they may not be able to see, you know, unless they're in the cadaver lab. Um, that was an incredible example of helping humans empathize in a way that they may, you know, have never been able to do without VR. Are there other applications that are really under the radar that um, that you're really excited about? Yeah, there's so many examples now. As the deeper I look, the more uh, examples there are. Uh, I mean, just um, this week I learned about an example where VR is being used to restore vision. Uh, in this one case, in a woman who had a brain tumor that affected uh, her optic chiasm. So she had uh, a lesion that really affected her vision. And they were able to actually reconstruct her vision through a pass-through camera in a VR headset that was able to permute the world in a way that uh, expanded the very small uh, area that she had vision um, to blow up the space and give her uh, a a restored ability to, to read. She couldn't read a book without the VR headset. And then she puts the VR headset, they give her Harry Potter, and she starts to read it. Wow. So, you know, this is not fun in games. I mean, you think people think, oh, VR, this will come and go. Oh, this is gaming and entertainment. This is, you know, for pimply teenagers to play first-person shooter games in their parents' basements. No, no, that's not at all what we're talking about here. This is amazing stuff. Now, we've got to be careful about not over-promising what VR can achieve, but VR is achieving amazing things, whether it's that or being used for stroke rehabilitation. And some of these are now even FDA cleared. Um, so these aren't under the radar. These are well in the radar now. Uh, there are amazing examples that are, that are developing. That's actually ties into the question I was most looking forward to asking you. How have you dealt with skeptics? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you've been a thought leader and really pushing this new field forward. And for all of us who have attended your conferences and read the evidence, we know that there is a very sound clinical utility here. But in in developing this new field, I'm sure you have dealt with skeptics. Some of the skeptics may have been key stakeholders that you needed to talk to and get on board with uh, this vision. How have you dealt with those skeptics? I'll start by saying that uh, I was and still am a skeptic myself. So I think any, you know, um, any scientist should be skeptical. That's the, the null hypothesis in science is that something is not going to work. 
and then literally just that's the basis of statistics. You know, a uh, p-value is the probability that you know something uh, may actually work. I mean, it's, it's essentially what it is, uh, or that we're not making a mistake and saying something's working. So I'm a skeptic myself, and I'm always the first to point out if something's not working. In fact, um, I tweeted out a picture of my headset smashed apart from <laughs> the Oculus Quest. And so we have to all be honest about what's working and what's not. But all I had to do was, you know, watch over and over again how patients were responding. And I realized, like, wow, there's something happening here. We now need to study this scientifically and rigorously. So what I found is that there aren't as many skeptics as at least that I've come across as I might have thought. Um, for example, for pain management, you know, most any doctor who's worth anything knows that we have some real problems managing pain. Uh, you know, and opioids are not going to be the answer. We know this. Um, so, boy, why not try it? I mean, what what's to be what, what is there to be skeptical about? But that said, I've had some people who are skeptical. In fact, I had you know one prominent person say, "Oh, you know, I don't use non-FDA cleared." Um, treatments for my patients. And I thought, hmm, really? Uh, is aspirin FDA cleared? Because it's I don't think it is, last I checked. Uh, how about talk therapy? Is that FDA cleared? I mean, are, do we have to get cleared to do cognitive behavioral therapy, a CBT, an FDA cleared device? I mean, it's, it's talking to people. So sometimes people hold a bar, you know, like, you know, I hear things, oh, well, how long does, does the pain relief last for? And my first read, well, how long does an opioid last for? I mean, do we ask that question of opioids? Uh, how long does it need to last for? Does it need to cure the pain for you to use VR? That's a, we're not going to cure. We're not going to cure pain necessarily. Um, so sometimes I just use a Socratic method to deal with uh, to deal with skeptics, I guess. So speaking of aspirin, uh, it's believed that roughly 25 percent of the population would not even, are non-responders to aspirin. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we know this to be true about most drugs. And, you know, VR as a therapeutic is no exception. There are mm -hmm. going to be some people that are sensitive to it and some are not. And you talk a lot about finding the right experience in the right person in the right environment at the right time. And really hitting on this sort of concept of precision medicine. And, and VR is no exception. And I'm just curious in your experience, building out this sort of VR pharmacy how do cl clinicians need to go to develop their plat their VR platform for their patients in order to maximize its efficacy? Yeah, now this is really key here is we're at the point now that we need to start thinking about mechanism of action. You know, we talk about that as doctors talk about MOA. How does this drug work? You know, we want to know, you know, even if it's even if I don't fully understand the MOA biochemically of a drug, I need to understand it well enough to explain it to my patient and to like it has to make coherent sense why I'm using this drug. And, you know, VR or any immersive therapeutic or any digiceutical, for that matter, uh, should also uh, be scientifically based. So, you know, one thing that I talk about, and I know we have a lot of time to get into it today, but there are different mechanisms of action by which VR works. Are we trying to tamp down interceptive signals of pain? Is it through gate control theory? Is this time acceleration or perception of time that we're modifying? Are we um, trying to restore a healthy understanding of the body? Uh, that's a different mechanism. Or are we trying to reduce uh, unhealthy body attention? That's a completely different mechanism of action. So as we start to think about it, there are several different MOAs by which VR works. And then there's different ways of achieving that. Um, so for example, pain management, um, a woman in labor has very different needs than a patient with irritable bowel syndrome. 
And in fact, there is a VR program specifically developed for labor and delivery that Melissa Wong here at Cedars um, has uh, helped develop and tested. And uh, her clinical trial will be coming out soon. And there's another recent study that shows that VR can be helpful for, um, for childbirth. But, you know, think about the script that you're listening to in VR during childbirth. Uh, I, I don't know. We're three men sitting around here, so we shouldn't be the ones to write that script. Um, but you need to understand the patient's needs and, and, and uh, experiences and, and unmet needs to create, you know, something like that for, for pregnancy and labor and delivery. One of the, the great things that I've noticed about a lot of the talks you've given about virtual reality and a lot of the studies that have been designed is the, the studies have really focused on um, design thinking, human-centered design thinking, which is, I think, a field that is really underutilized in healthcare. We recently had a talk on EMRs, and I don't think you can say human-centered design thinking and EMR in the same sentence, <laughs> but what has been your experience in using design-centered thinking in, well, so in right. VR I mean, trials? I, so there's this digital divide, by the way, and uh, I'm older than you guys. So what that means, I don't mean to pull rank. What I mean is I, I grew up typing on a typewriter. Like literally, I was like probably the last person on this planet that grew up typing on a typewriter. So I didn't grow up with the internet. And so when I look at the EHR, here I am talking about, I'm a digital health scientist and all this and that. But when I look at the EHR, I'm totally overwhelmed. I mean, there's, I counted over 110 buttons on the screen at one point. And, you know, I, I have to talk, I often have to turn to my colleagues who are younger than me who have apparently no problem finding the right button. I'm like lost still. And I think I'll always be that way because I was born and raised at a time that my brain didn't develop to understand these things. So the EHR was really not designed, you know, with principles of human centered, you know, design. Um, we're really fortunate to have in our group uh, an expert in human centered design. That's all she did. She got her PhD in this. So she's taught us a lot about how to just do basic things like ask patients or users what they think of this experience. What are their knowledge, attitudes, beliefs, preferences, values, and how do you capture that in a way that can be translated into the experience itself? So in VR, we actually call this a VR1 trial. And it turns out, just like the FDA has phase one and phase two and phase three trials, we've developed and published a paper around VR1 and VR2 and VR3 trials. And what the VR1 trial is, is not really a trial at all. It's more of a study where you use human-centered principles, human-centered design principles to create a virtual environment that meets the needs of the end users, patients in this case. And that means literally talking to patients and they have to be integral to developing these virtual environments. And as we move on, VR2 is sort of testing that in uncontrolled um, case series and VR3 is a proper randomized control trial. But some people jump right to the VR2 or VR3 without stopping to actually, you know, talk with patients about this stuff. So that's a really important concept. We talk about VR democratizing care and that being a huge potential use for VR. Um, but something I always come back to when we interview all these, you know, thought leaders about new in, uh, technologies um, that will hopefully accelerate care and medicine is the fact that, you know, it's the economy, stupid. And what I mean by that, somebody has to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's always the question when we talk about new technology is, is this something that insurance providers are going to pay for? Is this something that is going to be a direct to consumer model or an out of pocket model? You know, what do you envision the future payment model for VR as it's integrated into the healthcare system? Right. 
Yeah, no, um, this is probably the biggest barrier right now to wider spread adoption is having clear reimbursement, having codes for the procedure itself. Now, to begin with, there are people that are um, billing for, for VR right now. Uh, for example, uh, psychiatrists or psychologists who are using certain systems, like there's one system called Sias. I have nothing to do with the company, but they support therapists who are using VR in their practice. So they will bill for a, you know, a therapy session, just happens to be a VR therapy session. Uh, and that's completely legitimate. So they distinguish their practice as a VR practice. So Les Posen in Australia is an example. There's a guy named Howard Gurr out in Long Island. And there's a bunch, in every state, there's a certain number of people that are doing therapy with VR using the system Sias or Limbix is another one. And they can bill for their time. Um, rehabilitation doctors, um, I'm learning, are starting to bill for, for their time using uh, VR rehabilitation. Um, so it's a matter of integrating it within their practice and billing for what they're licensed to do and using VR to do a better job at that. Um, now, what we don't yet have are sort of ICD-10 codes for specific procedures. Like if I'm going to treat pain with a, with a VR, is there, is there a procedural code for that? Not yet. Uh, I'm hoping that in time there will be. Uh, as we continue to gain evidence. And I've been encouraged to see more and more insurance companies uh, coming to our conference and asking questions and even sponsoring our research. So um, uh, hats off to Travelers Insurance, uh, who's been sponsoring one of our research studies to learn more about uh, VR for pain management. Uh, there, the whole opioid epidemic is, you know, uh, we all, we're all dealing with it. And why wouldn't insurance pay for something that can reduce opioid exposure and as a result, it reduce costs. The last thing I'll add on this topic is we did publish a cost-effectiveness analysis looking at, from a hospital perspective, if it would be worthwhile to literally have like a VR consult service, a virtualist, whose job it is is to go around and use VR in the hospital. And just today we did this in um, a patient who has had very severe pain, has had eight surgeries, and is still having severe pain, abdominal pain. And we went and put her underwater uh, virtually, um, and she swam with dolphins today, and she had a terrific time. Now, we'll see if it was just an entertaining moment in her hospital course or if there's some longer-term clinical benefit, but why wouldn't insurance pay for that it's if she can get out the door sooner or have um, better outcomes than a surgery, for example, a, a ninth surgery? So that's what uh, we need to start looking at more carefully from a health economic standpoint. You know, in addition to economics, uh, on our podcast series that we had about artificial intelligence, we spoke with Dr. Califf, the former FDA commissioner, about uh, the regulatory, unique regulatory hurdles of artificial intelligence algorithms. Um, do you see any unique regulatory hurdles that VR may face um, as a new technology? I think it's it's different from AI in the sense that this isn't an algorithm that's changing and learning that may be different than the one that was approved. But do you think that there will be some regulatory hurdles uh, aside from the reimbursement and economic hurdles that we just talked about? It's hard to know right now. And in fact, the two may come together. So AI algorithms um, are already beginning to inform VR experiences. So, you know, we can debate what AI means and what big data is and so on and so forth. But the idea is that in VR also, there's all sorts of metadata we can collect during the VR experience. There's psychometric data, there's other EHR-based clinical data that might inform how to select the best environment for an individual. And people have different experiences as the day goes on. 
and they need to be met where they are. So there's folks working on how to personalize the VR experience around individual users, and that has AI implications for sure. Um, so some of those regulatory discussions apply here. But otherwise, I don't think VR is so different as a digiceutical that it's any different than an app um, or wearable and, and from a regular, from like an, a clearance standpoint. Uh, I think it's the same basic blocking and tackling. Like, okay, is it safe? Are people getting electrocuted? Are people throwing up? Are people getting sick? And these are things we could, you know, we haven't talked a lot about today, but, you know, is it safe? And, um, you know, is it effective? Like uh, compared to what? And how do we know that it's effective? Um, and I think in many ways, you know, it's easier to get something like a VR treatment approved than let's say a chemotherapy. I mean, they're not even in the same ballpark, uh, nor should they be considered in the same ballpark. So I'm not too worried about the regulatory landscape being a burden or barrier rather for a VR adoption. Hopefully I, I don't, uh, you know, eat, eat my shoe on this, you know, three or four years from now looking back. Changing pace a little bit. Uh, I think you talked a little bit about it, but I'm curious if you'll go a little more in depth about, you know, what you viewed as some of the biggest uh, or some of the largest misconceptions regarding VR. I know for me personally, um, and interacting with other providers, other people on this topic, a lot of people think, oh, it's, you know, it tricks your brain. It sort of hijacks you. You feel a certain emotion. It scares you. All the things that we've described, true, or helps create a certain feeling, right? Um, but one of the really interesting things is we're seeing actual physiological changes. Yeah. And you alluded to that earlier when you talked about its use in stroke and rehab patients mm -hmm. or physical mm -hmm. therapy and accelerating functional recovery. These aren't just feelings people are having. These are actual physiological changes we can actually measure. And I, I'm curious if you've seen similar misconceptions around VR being this sort of nice little trick, right? As opposed right. to actually being a real therapeutic. Yeah, like a digital parlor trick with, right. you know, oh, that's cute and that's a short-term benefit. And, you know, uh, you know that, and, I, and we touched on it earlier and I gave the example of that patient who could see now and couldn't see before. And like, that's very, very real. Um, so, you know, people think, oh, this is smoke and mirrors distraction. Well, you know, it is that in some cases, it is, like for a child getting uh, an immunization shot, that's exactly what you want to do is basically distract that child for a minute in some beautiful playground or something, you know, fantastical so that the child doesn't think about the pain. That is smoke and mirrors. But that's just tip, that's the tip of the iceberg of what VR is able to do. And by the way, that's not a sh that, that's a pretty great thing. I mean, there's data that shows that kids are tolerate shots and don't even feel it. Or maybe more profoundly, although that's still compelling, uh, a patient you know, with severe burn injuries going through bandage changes, something that is at the extremes of human tolerance, being able to tolerate that a little bit better in VR and definitely better than with opioids. And is that smoke? I don't, you know, that's smoke and mirrors? Well, maybe it is, but it's making a difference. But you then start thinking about rehabilitation. For example, somebody's had a stroke, can't move their right arm, can't move it. Uh, it's not moving. And now they put on a VR headset and they see their body, their virtual body, and they look down and there's their right arm. And guess what? They can move it wherever they want to. And how? By moving their left arm. So now the computer is showing them moving their right arm, but they're controlling it with their left arm. But you know what's amazing is from the outside, looking at that same patient, that right arm is twitching. That right arm starting to move slightly, which they could not do with the VR headset. And this is the basis of some stroke rehabilitation programs like MindMaze, which is an FDA cleared 
program that does just that. So that's very real stuff. That's far beyond smoke and mirrors distraction. I mean, you hear we're talking about neuroplasticity and rerouting the brains and, you know, amplifying the brain's capability by getting out of your mind, in essence, through these virtual worlds. So when I think about these, uh, I think, well, this is really what VR is about to me. This is the profound impact that VR has. In addition, all those other really still important uh, use cases that I described earlier. Thank you so much, Dr. Spiegel, for taking the time to, to talk to us about VR. This has been a really interesting episode. I think it's amazing that this is a new technology on the horizon, is not being used everywhere yet. In the clinical trenches right now at Cedars, we have patients that are benefiting from this every day, which is, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, I'll just go ahead and, and ask you the question that, that we love to ask all of our guests. If you have any advice for younger physicians, fellows, people that are maybe interested in, in taking an idea that, that, uh, that may be challenged by the skeptics that we talked about and moving that forward, what advice would you have to give them to, to keep chugging along? Um, I think the key is being skeptical yourself, you know, uh, don't overpromise um, uh, and underdeliver. you know, underpromise and overdeliver. I think that's uh, generally a good, good principle. Uh, it's really exciting with technology, especially, you know, to get a little ahead of ourselves, get over our skis, cart before the horse, whatever analogy you want to use. And especially with Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and people that don't necessarily know what it's like to be in healthcare. It's easy to confuse healthcare for other industries. And, you know, the three of us are doctors and, um, you know, we've seen the, the worst that humanity can experience. Uh, like on a regular basis, like probably later today. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to have these conversations, but I also always want to keep in mind that there are people suffering grievously. And you know what? VR is not always going to be the answer. In fact, it usually won't be the answer, but there are still certain opportunities. For, in this case, VR we're talking about today, or for listeners thinking about other technologies or other opportunities, think about where it fits into the much broader world of healthcare. Think about the use cases where it has the best chances of succeeding. Be modest about that, but also really focused on demonstrating the benefit in those use cases uh, and collecting the necessary data to demonstrate it to a level that is satisfactory to people like us who are making decisions um, about our patients and hopefully trying to do more, you know, uh, more good than harm, you know, primum non nocere, which by the way, which is the Latin for first do no harm, we can never really follow that perfectly. We're always going to do, unfortunately, there's always a risk for harm. And whenever we're using any medicine or any digiceutical or any therapy, there's always some risk for adverse events. And we have to recognize that and respect that, whether we're talking about VR or we're talking about wearables or, or AI, we have to always think about that and, and be cognizant. So, you know, a little bit of a soapbox, I guess, but at the same time, it's directed to me because um, I find myself getting really excited about this stuff. And I don't want to be misinterpreted as thinking as being, you know, a proselytizer for VR. So I want to be the first person to say, hey, you know, this didn't work, but let's figure out why it didn't work. Sometimes there's just as much information in negative studies, if not more than a really exciting positive study where everything worked, po you know, really well. So those are some, I guess, parting thoughts. Awesome. Thank you so much, yeah, Dr. Thanks. Spiegel. Thanks for having me.